Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. With most of my future behind me, I thought it would be another good time to look back at it. I had the fortune, not good, not bad, maybe that's just destiny that I had, to be part of agriculture in the 1980s. Now, to those who weren't there or were distracted by other things, It was a full-bore economic depression for many in farming, uh, ranching, and all other forms of agribusiness. In 1985, I was working for KWCH Television in Wichita and Hutchinson, Kansas. I was there from 84 through 87 and in Kansas for seven years, beginning right at 1980. And I was doing radio and television up until 84, and at that time, Joining KWCH full-time, I became the bureau chief at Hutchinson, which is a little place where they had the license for the station, but not much else. During that time, we were purchased by a Western Kansas rancher and a Western Kansas businessman who know how to, who knew how to run radio and television stations. And the little station that Julie Becker in an earlier podcast called the number four station in a number three market, suddenly sprouted wings and began to fly. And one of the people on board with me at that time was Steve Bessemer, who was a photographer in the news department. And Steve and I managed to get an opportunity to go to farm aid in the fall of that year. And that's what this is about today. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. Great to be with you. How long were you in Kansas? Where did you come from before you got there? Well, after graduating, uh, growing up in Missouri, graduating from the University of Missouri in 1981, my first job took me to uh, Peoria, Illinois, where I worked at a uh, ABC station there until uh, 1983. And that's when I came to, uh, to Wichita, and uh, to KWCH, and I was there until about August of, of uh, 1987. I actually had a chance to come before the changeover with the call letters in Wichita and the ownership and all that, and I kind of backed off from that, but uh, ended up coming back uh, later on after I'd seen kind of the direction that things were going and was glad to be a part of that for, for about four years. It was a really fun time. What would you say that would summarize the changes that went on there um, in the period you were there and maybe the period that's uh, surrounded that a little bit that would give people an opportunity to appreciate how much that little station did and how much we changed during that period? When I did my first interview there for a photographer's position, and I guess it was 1982, probably late summer or something like that in 1982, it was, it was, there were hardly any people there. It was just kind of a, a sparse settings. The new ownership had not come in and it, and it was just, uh, I just had reservations about coming in before new owners because I felt like that, you know, there was just, it just didn't feel right, you know, and it was no, nothing against anybody who was there or anything like that. But just for, for my, for my comfort level, it just didn't feel right. So, uh, and, and then when I came back, uh, you know, 
less than a year later, it was like there was just an energy there and a confidence there and a, a willingness to to kind of take on whatever challenge and to take on whatever story assignment uh, and get it done and do it the very best. And it was just kind of that you felt like you were part of something that was really neat, that was really heading in the right direction. And so that, you know, you're willing to work harder when you when you think you're going to get some good rewards out of it. If you're at a place where you're maybe not going to get noticed, nobody's going to see it, nobody's going to appreciate it. It's awful hard to to uh, put in that extra effort. But I think for there, particularly with the other people who are around who are working just as hard or harder, you know, it was great to be great to be on that and have opportunities to do stuff to to contribute to the direction they were heading. I think a number of things you said there sums up your personality. You are a serious-minded photographer. You're dedicated to what you do. You're a strong guy. Uh, and at that time, the amount of stuff you had to carry uh, made it to where that it was a manual labor job, uh, maybe still is for many people who carry these beta cams. But as uh, you were in the newsroom, you were uh, viewed as good you weren't senior by any means. I think Jim Anderson was your senior, was your chief yes. photographer at the time. Yep. But uh, this, the assignments for all of us rolled up, and um, we worked for a guy by the name of Steve Ramsey. And in all of these podcasts that I'm doing with the Channel 12 people, Steve Ramsey keeps coming to the surface, and he was the news director, and he was go-go, uh, and you'd me, uh, and you both, we would do anything for him because just what you said, uh, working hard when it's appreciated is something that you're certainly willing to do. So to cut to where we're headed with this, he had links to many people who already were admiring him on the scene. And one happened to be the people at CBS. We were a CBS affiliate in Wichita Hutchinson. And uh, he was contacted by the road crew that was going to set up at Farm Aid, which was coming to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, uh, roughly uh, third week of September of 1985. And uh, he asked me, since I was the ag reporter, if I would go. And how it happened, I don't know, but I was very fortunate that you were assigned to go with me to that. What do you remember of your first knowledge of going to Farm Aid before we had any idea what it was going to be? You know, at that time, Ken, you know, we had to, we, at that station, you had opportunities to go places and to cover events. It wasn't just things that were in, you know, in Wichita or just directly outside. So it was, it was kind of exciting when you, you caught wind of something that, hey, you know, we can, we can go out of state or even out of the country and and go cover an event, be part of an event. And so I don't know how I was, I became the person matched up with you because you, you generally worked out of Hutchinson. I generally worked out of, out of uh, Wichita. A lot of the times I worked kind of the evening shift, uh, you know, you were early morning. So I really don't recall how it came to be, we were matched up. Uh, you know, the fact that I'd worked in Illinois for a couple of years might've had something to do with it, but, but I knew, you know, I think when opportunities came like that came along at, from the photographer point of view, you didn't want to pass those up because there was always, you know, one or two other guys definitely who would seem like they'd be ready to go on something like that. So I didn't know much about it. 
just knew we were going back to Illinois and there was supposed to be a big concert, supposed to be some some big name people coming in and, and maybe a lot of people showing up. And it was for, a, you know, seemed like for a very uh, important cause and everything like that. So it just se- seemed like it had a, a lot of things that interested me. So I was I was excited about the opportunity to, to go back to Illinois. So we packed up all the things we thought we needed and we drove from Wichita over to Peoria to Champaign-Urbana, and we found uh, a place to stay. And then you and I went over to the area where that they had the arena, uh, where the concert grounds were going to be. And we linked up with the people at CBS, which I recall they had a, a trailer uh, that had just been pulled in. And we went in and met a lady by the name of Linda Karras. And Linda was in charge of that road operation. And she mm-hmm. was uh, kind of a smoker and uh, talker and kind of had a gruff voice. Uh, but you found out that that was just a facade. And she said, you know, the way that you have to look at it is if you're on the road, everybody back at the station's an asshole. And if you're back at the station, everybody on the road's an asshole. And that's the way you got to get along. <laughs> and she true, had this true word, yes. <laughs> New Yorker personality. And she didn't have any ability to know how much it costs to live in that area because she had been living in Manhattan. So there were these two girls she found in there that she told us the story. So it was self-effacing here that she found to be able to work with her. And, uh, they were in the communications department. And so she said, well, I'm looking for a place to stay. I'd kind of like to find an apartment to stay in, uh, for this, uh, 10 days that I'm going to be here. Um, I think I think I could pay nine hundred dollars for that. Do you girls have any idea where I could find anything? And so the next day, this girl came back to her and she said, "Yes, you can stay in my apartment. We've moved everything out of it." Well, these girls were making about they were paying about four hundred a month to live in these apartments, and so she got nine hundred to be out of her place for ten days, and that was just kind of how that they went because they were willing to spend um, a little over the top. They had good facilities. They had an uplink facility there, which was very valuable to us because we could send our stuff back. It was much more complicated to file your stories back then than it has become since with the use of the Internet today. And uh, we're early. And the concert isn't until Sunday, but we're going to do things for the news every day. So as I recall it... um, on Friday, we really rolled into this and we kicked out a couple of stories and I did a, a live standup, as I recall, during the um, noon news and um, maybe another one during the six o'clock news. And the background for this part is that Willie Nelson, um, and I found some of this out actually um, just recently by looking through um, Wikipedia and other places. Um, was he was very active at the time. Of course, everybody knew Willie then, but Willie liked to reinvent himself. And so at a live aid benefit that was done um, for the Ethiopian famine back in July of that year, Bob Dylan had made comments about family farmers in the United States and the danger of those farmers losing their farms through debt. And he said, to that worldwide audience he had, which supposedly was over a billion people that were attending or were listening to or watching the live aid concert. Wouldn't it be great if, you know, maybe a little bit of money could go to these farm people to help them out. And 
from that, it appears that Willie and his friends, which included Neil Young and John Mellencamp, came up with the idea of getting people to come into a venue and to perform, say, like for 12 hours. They had to be drinking when they were talking about this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll ask everybody to come. And so they found that the Memorial Stadium in Champaign would seat 80,000 people. And that's a lot of ego to think you'd get 80,000 people to come in. And then you think you'd get them to come in in a concert that the benefitters, those who benefit, were, how do you say that one? For those who were to benefit, the American farmer was really hard to imagine because farmers don't take charity very easily. And they are business people. They're people of the land, but they're business people. They're independent. They're some of them poor, but proud, but proud, I think is the key word. And um, so they began putting this together and it was almost like, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit entered into it and it happened. Mm -hmm. And so by the time that we heard about it, it was going to go. And there we were waiting for these people to come in, whether they would show up or not. And uh, it was astonishing that they were going to pull a lot of people in, non-farm people primarily, you know, students from the university and other people driving in from all over. But calling attention to the plight of the American farmer was the basis of the whole thing. And I might say to you, Steve, that you covered some stories and I covered some stories during that time of farm foreclosures. Um, I covered some of farmers who had committed suicide because they had uh, lost their land or lost their businesses. And it was a, it was a terrible time right then because you just didn't have any money that you were making. That was enough to support your farming operation. In many cases, commodities were cheap and the interest rate was very high. The parallel of today, do you feel that one? You know, the parallel of today is 40 some years ago in 1981 is the last time we had an inflation spike like we've just had. Mm. And, you know, that came on the heels of, of these other benefit concerts for others across the world and for other other causes. And and I and I think some people looked at it and said, look, we got some people here at home who are out busting their back every day and and, uh, you know, just trying to get by and under all this stress and, and, you know, the market kind of plays against them and the, and the interest rates play against them and stuff like that. And, and it's just like, we got to, got to do something for our folks here who are, you know, in the breadbasket, so to speak, who are, who are, you know, kind of the backbone of the country in many ways. And so it was, it was great for not just, you know, it wasn't just words, but actually some, some people really worked hard to, to make it come to fruition that day. Well, on Friday, we did our stories. And then on Saturday, we sort of had a free day, but we were uh, going to be able to uh, get a story that would lead into our coverage on Sunday. And they were going to pick us up on the, uh, the first uh, evening newscast, which uh, uh, Julie Becker was the anchor at that time. So we went out to a farm and uh, I found a farmer and, you know, my job is to talk myself into the gate and be able to uh, convince them that what we're going to do is, is going to be interesting, if nothing else, but hopefully good for them and good for everybody. 
And so this guy was willing to talk to us while he was combining soybeans. And you and I were out in the field with him combining soybeans. We interviewed him. And he generally told me, as I recall, that he wasn't too crazy about this concert. He didn't see that it was going to really help him any. And uh, he was out there, you know, doing the job he needed to do and uh, didn't really have a positive uh, vibe of this concert coming in. So we're trying to finish up the story. And I know you know where I'm going, but I thought, what would be a great closing shot for this thing? And we hear this loud noise. What was it? <laughs> well, we're kind of out there with, you know, at, at that time of year, the, the, you know, the crops in the fields are getting kind of high. So you don't have much of a, it, it's not like looking across the, the, the plains necessarily or a field. I mean, it's your, your, your view is limited a lot of times horizontally. It seemed like in Illinois out in the farmland at that time of year, but, but over the top, just almost to where you could reach up and touch it was a blimp and the, the Fuji blimp, the Fuji camera film blimp, whatever it was that I guess was coming in for the event. Just not only this, this huge blimp coming over us, but this huge blimp coming over this out in the middle of nothing but farm acreage. And it was just a, just a, a, the strangest thing, the the most shocking, surprising thing that you could imagine to see out in the, out in the middle of the farmland like that. We were, uh, you know, just in the right place at the right time, but we were able yeah. to get pictures. Steve was of the combine, the blimp, and they may have just been out touring. You know, a blimp is an excellent platform at that time. Um, it's low speed and, uh, you can just go out and tour around the countryside and, and they were going to be doing the aerial camera work the next day at the stadium. Goodyear had their blimps around, but it just happened that Fuji brought in theirs for that one, and that was the one that we saw. So we finished up that story, had it ready to uh, send, went back and uh, had some pretty good rapport with the people at CBS. I remember I learned a great deal from them, and uh, it came in handy later on because I actually went to Germany on a hostage crisis, and they were running the, a one floor of a hotel at that time as well. And uh, we were able to get finished up and uh, got a good night's sleep. And at noon the next day, they were supposed to get started with this concert. Do you recall some of the people that were going to be on the performer's chart? You know, I, I there was a few during the years, and I, I I did. I remember buying a shirt that day, one of those T-shirts that had all the artists listed across the back. And and I I don't know when or where that shirt disappeared to, but um, I wish I still had it because it was just amazing. You would look, you know, everyone from Billy Joel to BB King to I think the Beach Boys were there, and 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 Bob Dylan, who you mentioned earlier, was there. Although I don't remember him performing, but. They would just constantly just rotate these artists, you know, country, rock and roll, blues, um, you know, kind of hard rock sort of acts and stuff like that. And it was just it was just amazing. And even even when I would look at that shirt, you know, after I got it like a week or so later, it's like, oh, I didn't you know, I didn't remember that this guy was there. You know, I forgot all about this person. I had no idea they were there. So it was uh, it was quite a lineup. And, you know. 
starting from midday and going late into the night and the, the you know the weather which had been so nice when we got there the first couple of days just just went downhill and <laughs> and uh didn't make for the best of conditions for people to perform because it just rained and rained and rained but but it was quite a lineup that they ended up with i recall that uh we were given full access we could literally go anywhere on the grounds and they had a big stage set up at one end and they would just rotate these performers i'm not I'm, i even think they had two different sides of that stage where they could switch back and forth and cover one so that they could set up a new band and then go to the other one or they would rotate it but they made it to where that there was pretty much a seamless activity of one band to another you and i shot a video of the beach boys and only one of them had his shirt on and mm-hmm. uh, that was a little controversy between us of me saying, you know, the best shot here is the guy that looks like a beach boy, not the guy that has in your favorite shot. And we made it through that. All right. Um, but <laughs> listen to this group of people, Queen, Bon Jovi, Jimmy Bucket, Buffett, Glenn Campbell, Johnny Cash, David Allen Coe, Charlie Daniels, John Denver, uh, Fogarty, Foreigner. Uh, it just goes on and on. And we'll bring up a few more in a little while here. But I recall being in an area, oh, probably around 6 o'clock that evening, and I looked over, and there's a guy wearing an FFA jacket. And I thought, now that's pretty darn smart. You know, here we are mm-hmm. with an arm aid concert, and here's a guy from Alabama wearing an FFA jacket. And I walked over to him, and his back turned to me, and he had a shock of uh, blonde hair, and I said, sir, that's amazing. You've got on an FFA jacket and he turned around and on the name, it said Randy Owings. And he said, yeah, it's my FFA jacket. And that, because he went on to become a uh, livestock breeder, quite a number of things. In fact, I even saw him pitching at the field of dreams in Northeast Iowa about three or four years ago. And, uh, so it was a really amazing group at the concert. Um, I recall that there were a few other people. Deborah Winger was big at the time. She was dating um, the governor of Nebraska. And so she had become rather uh, famous oh, within yeah. Midwest. Um, yeah. And of course, uh, there were people that were there that were famous as movie stars and singers. And let me think of the guy's name that was on Dukes of Hazard. It was John what? Schneider. John Schneider. Yeah, and he was really good looking. And yep. I have never seen women go after a person like they were after him. There must have been 30 or 40 women that were there only to see him and only to get to him. And I recall one lady that came over to me, it wasn't exactly a lady, but she said, is there any, any way you can get this note to him for me? Can you give him this note? And I, I took the note, but I'm sorry. I did not give it to him because I wasn't going to be a courier over there. But I, I took the note and and just dropped it. That was awful of me. I want to confess huh? now. So but, you, had a, you had a little competition that day then, huh? From yeah, John Schneider? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, you know, that would be that would be a a blessing and a curse all swirled together yes. in that they're all after you, but my God, they're all after you. So I don't really know <laughs> what you should do at that point. So we continue on through, we, we do our live shots 
uh, after our package feeds are, is run at 5.30. And we didn't have to go home that evening, and we shot some more stuff, and then we enjoyed things as well. And I recall us watching it into the night. And um, it all had to end eventually. Um, but the way I remember it ending was that one of these guys walked out on stage at like 10 o'clock or 1030 and yelled expletives like, where the blank are we? <laughs> and people were covering this from networks all across the country, either audio or video. And at that point, I found out a lot of them just pulled the plug right then because they weren't going to have that uncontrolled environment uh, on their air. So they went away. Do you recall that sort of thing? Yeah, I remember we were, because it was kind of slow. You know, as I mentioned, it had been raining all day. It didn't seem like there was as big of a crowd. It seemed like the crowd that was there was kind of, you know, less excited. There was not, you know, we were near a tent where the the different artists would come in and be interviewed by the media, take questions from the media. And, and, and during the middle of the afternoon, there was, you know, there were dozens of reporters and cameras in there for these different artists that were coming in and, and, um, you know, by the end of the day, by, you know, eight, nine o'clock at night, it's, it's basically empty, but inside the stadium, it kind of turned into a rock and roll concert. And it was, uh, uh, Sammy Hagar and Eddie Van Halen. It was the first time I think they performed publicly together. Um, uh, and, and Sammy then later on to, to went on to join uh, Van Halen as their lead singer. But, yeah, it was, a, and I went in to watch a little bit of it, but it was loud, and like I said, it was rainy and sloppy in there, so I didn't stay long. But but the Nashville network was the was the cable television network that had been running complete coverage all day of this thing, you know, every every artist, and and yeah, at one point there was some comments, I think, particularly from Sammy Hagar that that did not quite fly <laughs> right, and I think it just got, yeah, a little bit. A little bit too much, and finally it was like, you know, the plug the plug was pulled. So that was the end of end of, end of that, and pretty much the end of end of the night as far as performances uh, were concerned. The thing I was tracking on Sunday was the number of politicians that were there, including Tom Harkin from Iowa, uh, who was very active in the farm legislation at the time, mm-hmm. and of course Neil Young, who's a Canadian uh, songwriter and singer. Uh, is was part of the startup with Willie, and Neil has always been very political, and he and Harkin were supposedly getting together for the purpose of trying to write the next U.S. Farm Bill, and that never really felt right with people, but uh, Neil Young was of the belief that there was a better way than what they were doing, and of course, Tom Harkin was uh, very much a politician involved in this. I interviewed him during the event, now, we go from all of this, and uh, by the way, we got home safely and lived happily ever after, but in 2011, Steve, I got a call from the Agriculture Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. I knew them well. I had, had done AgriTalk from there for several years, and I had been on their board of directors because their goal was to promote the people that had been heroes in agriculture, and we thought that In 1985, this was a one-shot deal with Willie Nelson. But in 2011, they were going to be in the Live Strong Arena in Kansas City, Kansas, for the 26th Farm Aid. Mm. Now, 
To make it even more profound, it's still going on today. As long as Willie lives, I understand they're going to do it, and it's got its own gravity, and it's moving on its own at this point, smaller than it once was. In fact, if you want to go online, you can read all the years and all the artists, but many people made this an annual trek and an annual contribution. I don't know why, but they did so. And so the Agriculture Hall of Fame wanted to induct Willie Nelson into membership. Now, the people that had been members up to this time were people like Henry Ford, uh, people like John Deere, uh, the guy who invented fertilizer, um, things of that nature, unbelievable level of people primarily in mechanization. But Willie's social program was such that it was recognized by so many and for such a long period that I actually got to go uh, to a big news conference with him. It wasn't on stage there, but it was probably 500 people ahead of time. And on stage was uh, Dave Matthews and Neil Young. And we gave Willie a membership in the National Agriculture Hall of Fame. And he graciously, in few words, accepted it. And I had my T-shirt there as well, which I showed them. And I said, even though I'd never worn it, it had shrunk quite a lot. Um, maybe because I'm bigger than I was at that time, but here was that shirt that had all those artists from 1985. And, uh, I took an intern with me who was just blown away that I actually could hobnob with Willie Nelson. If it had been George Strait, I think he'd have been happier, but you know, <laughs> the generation had changed and, uh, Willie's still on the road again and still going strong. And that's the story unless you have anything else to add to it of how that we covered 1985, the first, you know, the only thing I would add is just, just a couple of, couple of, you know, blips in my memory from that, but it's kind of, it's kind of going back to particular individuals. So, so uh, it's up to you. If you, it's your your program. I don't want to deviate. I can always edit it out. Tell me what (laughs) what you're going to say and no one will ever know. No, the first thing, the, the, my first two things are, the, are my, other than the Sammy Hagar, uh, Van Halen thing, the two things I kind of usually tell people most about my experience there, I guess as fresh as in my memory, is is the one the with Neil Young. Uh, CBS News wanted to interview him kind of out in front of the stadium, you know, while the concert was going on. And so there's crowds of people all around and they didn't want him hassled during this interview or people cutting in and messing it up or whatever. So I happened to be staying there. We were kind of on a break from whatever we were doing. And, and so they kind of, they kind of asked me to just kind of stand over by his shoulder and kind of act as a, act as a, you know, buffer to keep people away from Neil Young. So I, I refer to that as, as me serving as Neil Young's bodyguard for about five minutes while, CBS recorded an interview with him, and and that was kind of cool because it's like I could have just reached my arm straight out and touched his nose, but I mean I was nowhere to be seen on the final product. But you know, such is the magic of television. That, I that guess. is a good memory, though, just to be standing right there, yeah. invisible, invisible. I've been there a few times, and it is amazing. You're invisible, but yet you're right in the middle of it, right there. Yeah, and and did my purpose because nobody got in, and you know and interrupted that. And and the second memory I have, which I tell people is that I, I became uh, 
I became friends with Don Henley that night. Don Henley, who, who at the time was doing solo work, but of course, most associated with Eagles. Don Henley, I think, was the last artist to come into the media tent during that concert. And I mean, by the last person, there was like four reporters in there and Don and, and I was just kind of walking around looking for something to do. Just kind of sauntered into the media tent just to see what's going on. I kind of you couldn't really hear what they were talking about. So I kind of walked up close up front and there's plenty of chairs to sit in. So I thought, oh, I'll just kind of sit around the front row or whatever. Nobody's really saying anything. These reporters are kind of writing stuff on their notepads. And and so while they're writing and as I'm sitting down, uh, Don Henley's uh, up there at the behind this table, you know, up in front of the group. And he kind of he kind of looks up over at me and, and my I just acted naturally. And I just said, I just said, hi. And he said, how you doing? And I, I was like, fine. And I sat down. And so I told people, it's like, well, that's my friend Don Henley, because he's like, you know, we just connected like that, you know, during the during the media event there. But, uh, well, you know, you you can take little things and cherish yeah. them forever. And yeah. I think that is something. And I, I do think that as you meet these people that are, quote, famous, um, they're very different. Uh, some of them are just like you and me, and some of them uh, that are not quite as famous as others tend to want to be treated as more famous than anybody else. But in many cases, they're just uh, friendly folks, just happen to be trapped in yeah. the world they're spinning in at the time and watching themselves go by and watching you go with them. Um, that's that's neat to be able to I, do that. I think he probably was just really bored and, and tired of waiting for these people to write something, and so he just... Figured, hey, I'll, this guy's walking by. I'll just say hi to him or whatever. I don't know. It's, yeah. Well, Steve, you and I uh, got another trip. We traveled uh, with the U.S. Grains Council to Europe, and uh, that was another run that we made, uh, a little more uh, aggressive in in stopping here and there and yonder and mm-hmm. trying to keep people from trying to telling us everything within a hotel room when I'm a ag reporter and I want to see the countryside and they think they should just meet in a hotel and then move on to another hotel and meet there. And, uh, so I, we had to, uh, chase across uh, several countries in Europe doing that. But at the same time as doing a, a story that was a little dull, we were also doing a travel that was quite exciting. And, uh, I was in my thirties, you were in your twenties. And, uh, I remember all those well and enjoyed working you with you greatly. Uh, at that famous little television station that could uh, there in Wichita, Kansas. See, you were always, always great to work with, and I know I was sometimes a pain to you, but you, you were always a good sport about it, so I appreciate it. Oh, I think the opposite could be said as well. So I believe <laughs> that we were compatible. We got the job done. We had fun doing the job, yes. and we have great memories of it. So Steve Bessemer, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. 
See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.